Welcome to Restart Radio, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because, unlike most, we do not focus on the new shiny, shiny things to buy. We focus on the value in the stuff we already have. The Restart Project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and happier relationship with electronics. Our monthly community electronics repair events here in London are just the beginning. My name is Ugo Vallauri from the Restart Project and I'm joined today by my colleague Holly Davis. Welcome. Hiya. <laughs> Great to have you finally. Holly has been behind the scenes mixing, editing the show and so glad that you're here with us today. So today we're talking about a recent hearing as part of the UK Parliament's Environmental Audit Committee's inquiry on electronic waste and the circular economy. In the second part of that hearing a couple of weeks ago, I was invited to give evidence on how the current standards are and are not working. This happened alongside industry representatives and other organizations involved in critiquing circular economy and the lack of sufficient reuse and repair. Then after that, we'll hear a very exciting feature uh, from our colleagues at the Research Project uh, sharing their recommendations for summer reading lists. But things, first things first. So this Environmental Audit Committee uh, hearing, it was the first time I've actually had an opportunity to join uh, such an event. And it was actually really impressive to see how dense of information and how well prepared everyone was and really good questions from very engaged MPs. Uh, we've selected a few clips from the full recording which is available both on our website and on uh, Parliament's website. We've selected a few clips uh, that kind of tell the story of what was discussed. First one is from Jim Puckett from Basel Action Network explaining the limits to the circular economy as it is understood today. We've been a critic of the circular economy and it's for two primary reasons. It's well intended, but it still focuses far too much on recycling. It's like recycling on steroids. It's really should be thinking about turning off the tap. And the waste management hierarchy has always said the first priority is waste prevention. But the way that's being done, unfortunately, being implemented, that hierarchy is people say, well, can we prevent it? And they go, no, we can't. We'll go on down to recycling. Well, yes, you can prevent it if you put the incentives at the top of the, the life cycle. For example, a lease-based economy rather than an ownership economy. If we can incentivize that to happen with tax breaks for those that lease their products rather than sell them, then the incentive is placed on the manufacturer, the producer, to make sure their products don't have liabilities, don't have toxic chemicals, are easy to recycle, have a long life ahead of them. That's how we turn off the tap. The other problem with the circular economy is that they, for some reason, have failed to really recognize the destructiveness of externalities and leakage. So when you have a system that has uh, gross externalities of pollution to the global commons or to developing countries, you will never have circularity. It'll always be a toboggan downhill to the lowest common denominator, to the weaker economies. And that's the most linear thing you can ever have. So if you don't shut off those externalities, 
with strong enforcement and legislation and mechanisms to internalize costs, you will never have a circular economy. Then came our chance to discuss what is the opposition that manufacturers come up with. Nadia Witham, MP, uh, asked us a good question on that. To what extent do you find that these companies have been supportive or obstructive when it comes to the right to repair? By all of the three pillars of repair, for repair, access to repair documentation and access to spare parts. They have actually fought tooth and nail every step of the way. Um, teams of lobbyists in the United States, for example, go from state to state uh, with a course of fear, uncertainty and doubt, uh, trying to prevent state legislation to be passed. Similar arguments happened in, in Europe. And we know that in the US, uh, people have been threatened uh, with localized job losses. I mean, lawmakers have been threatened with localized job losses in case uh, right to repair legislation would happen. In, in Europe, they tried the death by a thousand cuts strategy in relation to regulation. There are big companies with pioneering projects in this area, but they're not at the heart of the business strategy. They're, they're, they're not really at the heart of what they're working on. And, um, Industry, unfortunately, is also using the COVID crisis at the moment as an opportunity to attempt to delay and block all forms of progressive uh, regulation, even in relation to pollution, to recycling, let alone right to repair. And we're also seeing a growing threat that actually comes from the role that software uh, can play in all of this. So how software can uh, further limit uh, product repairability depending on some software locks applied. So in addition to how manufacturers make hardware more difficult to repair, um, Libby Peak from the Green Alliance also raised the important part that how software is leading to device obsolescence as well. I would add as well that it's not just technical problems that, that, are, that, that do prevent repair and, and the full lifetime and products reaching their full lifetime. We've also got obsolescence of software and in a lot of instances, products aren't designed in order to be upgraded. So one of the, an additional problem in, in terms of, of something failing, it's not just the hardware, it could also be the fact that the new software isn't supported. And again, that's something that could be legislated for, that could be mandated that, that the products can be upgraded and that's something that, that I'd like to, to see brought in in terms of eco-design regulations. Yeah, so quite a wide-ranging set of conversations. Uh, was there anything else, Holly, that uh, stood out for you? Yeah, so listening through this hearing, um, we talk a lot about regulations in the EU and for the UK. Um, but a point that really stood out to me was the impact that overproduction and the resulting amount of e-waste can have on other countries. And um, we talk about a lot about this often in terms of labour injustices or mining of critical materials. But Caroline Lucas and Jim Puckett had an important exchange on the illegal exportation of e-waste. Um, we talked about a study where they put trackers into e-waste log where it eventually ended up. And they found that if they were to extrapolate the figures from their small sample size, it would indicate that at least 209,000 metric tons, tons of e-waste 
is exported to developing countries. Um, I think it illustrates the out of sight, out of mind approach that many people and corporations perhaps take to their old devices. Absolutely. And obviously it, it all comes down to how much electronic waste we generate in this part of the world to begin with, but we shouldn't underestimate the amount of illegal exports uh, leaving this country when we think perhaps that it's been recycled responsibly and it's not at all. Yeah, exactly. You are listening to Restart Radio on Resonance 104.4 FM. Now we move on and discuss our summer reading list. We're going to hear from a few of our colleagues here at the Restart Project. James, Neil, Ugo and Janet all chose a book from the summer reading list to review and they're going to tell you why you might want to read them. I remember as a kid being taken to some design museum and coming away thinking that design must be all about making chairs that you weren't allowed to sit on and that looked as boring as possible. It wasn't until much later that I finally understood that design isn't simply about shaping the way things look, but also, and more significantly, about the way they work and for whom. That's the starting point for Sasha Costanza-Chuk in their recent book, Design Justice. In Design Justice, we're taken on a journey through the entire design process, from the assumptions and values we encode or reproduce in the objects and systems that we create, through to how the design process works in practice. Who gets to do it? Where is it done? What stories do we tell about it? And how can we move towards community control of those processes? Costanza Chuck starts the book with her own experience at an airport in Detroit. At this airport, every passenger must go through a full body scan. The security agent can press a pink button to scan a female body or a blue button to scan a male one. But for the author, who is a non-binary trans femme presenting person, and whose body doesn't fit the machine's programmed definitions of what male or female bodies look like, the choice of either button will result in a so-called anomaly being identified and necessitate a body search every single time. With this one powerful example in the first few pages, the book reminds us that the design of socio-technological systems is a political act, intentionally or otherwise and how important it is that those impacted by these systems are involved in their design. It also reminds me of Josh Babarinde's talk in the opening session of FixFest UK just a few weeks ago, where he used the example of automatic soap dispensers that didn't recognise black skin to argue for the need for more diversity in tech. The book moves on to question the stories we're told and tell about the design of digital technologies. In another informative example, the book reveals the true origin story of Twitter. Spoiler alert, it had as much to do with hackers, activists and protesters as it did with Jack Dorsey and his VC mates. Perhaps of particular interest to restart podcast listeners is chapter four, which explores the spaces in which we design. Costanza Chuck explores hack labs, makerspaces, hackathons and fab labs, spending significant time giving a critical analysis of the latter. But I don't want to give the impression that the book is all about problems. Far from it. Early on, we're presented with 10 principles from the Design Justice Network, of which Costanza Chuck is a member. These principles are aimed at rethinking design processes by centering the people who are normally marginalized by design and empowering them to take a leading role. 
At each stage, we're encouraged to think about how participatory design and community-led practices that focus on impact over intention can help communities build systems that work for everyone. These are incredibly important questions and feel particularly urgent right now in the context of Black Lives Matter. Despite plenty of engaging stories, however, the book can feel a little overwhelming at times. And as the author acknowledges, it presents more questions than it does conclusions. But that's probably inevitable for a book that resists the idea of universal solutions. It's an important book, and one that links design to wider struggles for collective liberation. It's well worth a read, and it's a book I'm sure I'll be returning to many times. Um, so I read the book Hello World, How to Be Human in the Age of the Machine by Hannah Fry. Uh, and this book is about the increasing pervasiveness of algorithmic decision making in everyday life and how much we should be relying on those algorithms. Um, it's a really good book, very engagingly written and easy to read uh, on what could potentially be quite a dense topic. Uh, it's full of real-world stories to ground the more abstract questions, and it also weaves into that a nice basic overview of what algorithms are and how the latest crop of machine learning algorithms work. Um, and so, as explained in the book, when people talk about whether algorithms are good or bad, they pretty much always mean decision-making algorithms, something that makes a decision that affects a human in some way. Um, so, for example, long division is an algorithm, but it's not really having any decision-making effect on society. Uh, we're talking here more about things like putting people into categories, making ordered lists of, of people, of things, finding links between people and filtering out or excluding people. Uh, and so what the book is really focused on is the effect our increased use of decision-making algorithms like these is having on things like uh, power structures in society, uh, and medicine and crime and, and justice and um, cars and transportation, basically stuff that makes up the, the fabric of society. Uh, I mean, and the book does a really good job of uh, explaining some of the problems in outsourcing these decisions. Uh, one of the main things is bias uh, being built into the systems. Firstly, bias from that comes from the people who are making them. So white men in tech uh, with a very particular set of biases and limited worldview, recreating that view in their systems. Um, but also the biases inherent in society that are then being used as underlying sets of data to go into the algorithms um, and then being amplified within them. Um, so, for example, biases in policing and biases in the justice system uh, being just uh, built into uh, machine learning algorithms and then those being used and replicating those biases. Um, but the book is it's very even handed. So it's not a polemic against machine learning by any regards. There's plenty of positives uh, of, of machine learning, like image classification of tumors is an area where machine learning augments, um, in this case, pathologists to be able to make more decisions and, uh, and more quickly. Um, so I very much like that conclusion of uh, machine learning algorithms and humans working in, in parallel and it's not an either or of one makes the decisions or, or the other does. And I really like the idea of Centaur Chess, which was introduced where it's humans playing with artificial intelligences on a team against another pair of humans and artificial intelligences. Um, 
So I think probably my main criticism with the book would be that it doesn't really challenge the framing of the debate around machine learning. So, for example, there's a whole chapter on whether we should have driverless cars or not, but no mention of whether we should really actually be endeavouring to take cars off the road and focusing on public transport. And say, for example, with predictive policing, there's no questioning of the idea of policing as an institution in the first place, just the question of how we might or might not use algorithms uh, within it. Um, and there isn't a single mention of climate change in the book, which I think is quite um, amazing, really, in the current situation that we're in. However, but despite that, it, it still it does a really great job of outlining the positives and pitfalls in decision making algorithms. And uh, I would definitely recommend it. I would just like to see a follow up book on how machine learning could be used for more uh, purposes for good. So I've read Anne Pettifor's The Case for the Green New Deal, which is edited by Verso Books. And I'm really glad that I finally got a chance to read this book. I've spotted it in bookstores around Christmas time and didn't feel it was the right time and I'm glad we found the time now as it's really an extraordinary very agile book that I highly recommend to everyone who's been hearing about the Green New Deal in the UK in the US and in Europe more recently and Anne Pettifor uh, was one of the key people behind the initial idea for a Green New Deal uh, that came about in the UK around the time of the crash of 2008, um, actually just before that took place. And it's an important book because it talks about the need for a true system change, not just uh, a change uh, of for climate change, but actually it explains in quite a bit of detail how we need to fix the financial system and how the complete uh, marketization of huge uh, big chunks of sectors of the economy has led to this sort of unstoppable uh, push for consuming more, which is really at the heart of the problem. So while it's very rigorous in, in showing the need for the economy to change, it goes into a lot more depth as to, as to the why. And obviously recognizing that the Green New Deal needs to focus on ensuring that the rich north of the world, which is the 20% of people that are responsible for 70% of all emissions are helped in cutting those emissions drastically and also acknowledging the need for uh, a model that allows the rest of the world to push ahead and in, within a new econom economy. And I very much like how Petifor talks about the importance of being clear about what kind of system change is needed and what world we want. I'll just read a sentence that kind of captures this. 
My assumption is that readers of this book share the view that our economic goal is for a steady state economy, that is, an economy with a relatively stable, mildly fluctuating product of population and per capita consumption that helps maintain and repair the delicate balance of nature and respects the laws of ecology and physics, in particular thermodynamics. An economy that delivers social justice for all classes and ensures a livable planet for future generations. So I'm not going to spoil the whole book, but I found it really helpful in focusing on the big changes that go beyond uh, our need to say goodbye to fossil fuels, but why is it there is a system that pushes us to continue going in that direction? But it also talks about the importance of how we frame these issues, particularly in choosing to use or not to use certain words. And so uh, her choice to avoid speaking about growth and degrowth as well as uh, not helpful. And finally, the need for true leadership and focus movements, uh, bringing together not just the political leadership that's clearly missing, but recognizing the importance of people leadership. And she mentions uh, an example very dear to me of, of Wangari Mathai and a wonderful woman from Kenya and a Nobel Prize winner who led a phenomenal movement in, in her country. And so examples like her need to inspire us, but also to help us within the context of this book to, to make sense of the big changes and what are the levers that we as civil society have to push for to make the change inevitable. It's a great book. It's quite short and full of wonderful notes to more reading and highly recommend it. Even though the only thing that I miss in the book is that it was written last year, obviously at a time when we were in a completely different scenario and now it's also missing uh, how to make sense of what's happening in Europe with the European Green Deal, uh, but still a great starting point to understand what Green New Deal really means. So I read a book called Low Tech, designed by Radical Indigenism by author Julia Watson. Um, and it's an absolutely stunning volume published by Tashin, which is, I guess, known for its um, design and architecture and art books. Um, it's got a pretty amazing cover and the production inside is really pretty fabulous. The book is about a really interesting um, set of ideas that have been um that have been, I guess, kind of bubbling up um, among designers, urbanists, um, ecologists, and um, the idea that there's some kind of indigenous uh, philosophy, knowledge that can kind of, uh, as she says, once hybridized and scaled, could offer a new path to exponentially shrink the ecological footprint of mankind. So this book is is uh, in a sense, it's a little bit polemic, I would say, from the outset, because it's basically, um, it's kind of like premised as our, 
as the readers and potentially the writer's own discovery of certain indigenous concepts. Um, the term low tech, low dash T-E-K in caps, um, was coined by a Princeton professor who was from the Cherokee Nation originally um, called Eva Marie Garouet, um, Garout. And um, she she was the one who kind of combined two concepts. So low tech, meaning kind of um, low technology. So L-O-T-E-C-H, low tech. Um, and she combined this with the acronym TEC, which is traditional ecological knowledge, which is, which is, I suppose, uh, as, as it's characterized, um, a field of study in anthropology defined as a cumulative body of knowledges, practices, beliefs handed down through the generations by songs, origin stories, and everyday life. And so TEC, traditional ecological knowledge, when combined with low, we get um, what uh, what uh, Eva Marie Garut and the author um, Julia Watson call a design movement to rebuild an understanding of indigenous philosophy and vernacular architecture that generates sustainable climate resilient infrastructures. So the book is, I suppose it's an attempt to kind of um, take the reader through a journey um, to different places where these low-tech practices um, have survived. And it is really fascinating how um, I think it's quite geographically um, diverse and it's pretty, it's pretty amazing in its scope. Um, I have some questions about what is characterized as indigenous um, but uh, overall, it's it's a really amazing, um, you know, and spread. And the emphasis in the book is on um, kind of taking the reader to to basically to look at these infrastructures, to look at the way things are built, but not only to understand the way in which um, the practices are sustained and passed on and the way that perhaps they've developed and also the way in which they're currently under pressure. Um, so there's no, I suppose there's no romanticizing of kind of like a, um, an eternal, you know, indigenous, um, indigenous practice. Um, I guess my main critique of this book is that it feels very much like um, outsiders commenting on indigenous practices. And there are a couple of interviews with people who are kind of adjacent to or nearby these indigenous cultures or have really deep insights into them. But it's a shame that we don't hear more um, indigenous voices at all. And so there's that, there's that adage, um, nothing about us without us. And I kind of wonder... It's useful in on some level published books um, about indigenous knowledge where indigenous people are not more integral to the story. Yeah, so plenty of good stuff to read. Uh, hopefully you'll find some inspiration for the summer ahead. Last week we held the final night of FixFest 2020. The events over the last month have had a great success and lots of participation from across the whole of the UK and beyond. 
Uh, it's been great to reunite with so many in the fixing community, although unfortunately only via webcams. If you missed any of the events, uh, we'll be uploading the recorded session to our YouTube channels in coming weeks for you to watch back. Due to the pandemic, we're currently not running in-person restart parties. However, if you'd like help fixing anything with a plug or a battery, including headphones, radios and old audio equipment, use the hashtag SOSRestart. Just give us information on the make, model and fault of your device and we'll do our best to help. You can find more information at our website, therestartproject.org, or find us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Thanks to Opnonoise and Cassini Sound for our music, which was made with lasers, spinning plastic discs and discard electronics. We're taking a break in August, but look forward to be back on Resonance FM in September. Until next time.